I invite you this morning to turn to the book of James, chapter 2. We're going to continue at this look of James, chapter 2, that we began last week. Really kind of the second half of what James talks about here in in the first part of James 2, anyway. As we consider that James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, there in in the first century writes a letter to the church with this theme that faith works. What you believe has bearing on what you do. The change that God has brought about in your life, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, works itself out in your life just in the everyday actions and words and things that we, that, that we carry on in, in our daily lives. And so here in James chapter 2, James has been dealing with this issue of favoritism, of partiality. And last week, we we looked at the unfavorable conditions that partiality and favoritism brings into a church. And he gave this example of of these two men who came into the church. Uh, They came in, one wearing nice apparel, and he had gold rings, and one who came in obviously was, was very poor and destitute. And he said that if you treat those men differently based on just what you see, what you're doing is you're sinning against, against God. And he's going to continue to go on with that today. You know, he talked about how, how those things, they don't mesh with, with who we are as Christians. But now he's talking about how these things don't mesh with the law of God that God has given forth for us to, to follow. In James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, we read this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we look at this passage today, we'll consider this idea of not just the unfavorable conditions that came into the church in this area of favoritism, but also the unlawful conditions this creates in in our lives, in our church bodies as a whole. Father, we thank you for the time we have set aside to open your word now, to consider what it has to say, and Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds today, that you would help us as we come before just over the next few minutes here, these things, that you would show us our sin, that you would show us the grace of God that is greater than our sin, and that you would draw us to yourself and make us more like Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that today your, your word would be primary, would go forth here, that uh, this would not, uh, not be the words of a man. This would not be, uh, I wouldn't get in the way of these things, but you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit and through the things that you have written down for us today. We ask that we would, come out, we would walk out of this place different than we came in today because we have heard your truth proclaimed. You apply it to our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. Have you ever found yourself in life where the position you were in informed the way you acted? By that I mean this, perhaps as a kid or a teenager, uh, your parents reminded you of what your last name was. You ever had that happen? You know, because you are a 
whatever your last name is. We do do this or we don't do this. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. Some of these guys down here are like, yeah, right? Maybe uh, you were in the military. You know, if you're in the military, there's a lot of things you do do or don't do. And you don't really know the reason why, right? You say what? Yes, sir, right? And there's some things because of, of your position there. You do these things or you don't do these things. Maybe in the workplace, you have larger ideas that you represent as the company and they have bearing on your everyday behavior, whether it may be in the com- in your, inside your company, sometimes outside of that thing, out of that company or, or organization. And really, this is the calling of every Christian, that new life in Jesus Christ requires new attitudes and new actions in our lives as well. The Word of God in the life of a believer must take supreme precedence above all else. That is our our standard of faith and practice, personally as well as corporately. If you are one who's been redeemed by the grace of God, then you're called to live in that grace and live out the word of God. And as James continues to address the sin of partiality that's within the church here in Jerusalem, he shares the unlawful conditions of favoritism. And this idea that that passing judgment on others based purely on this outward criteria, what it does is it puts us at odds with who God is and what he expects of those who belong to him. And again, I I think this this whole idea of partiality and favoritism is one that that James goes after is, is very important for us today. Because we do this all the time, right? We talked about last week how we make judgments of people just walking through Walmart, right? Um... And, and we, we have no other reason, no other thing, just, just the, the outside criteria that we see. One commentator I read this week was very convicting. He said, we're, we in our own lives are just naturally drawn towards people who are like us. And, and where do you see that more often than not, but, but maybe like the school cafeteria, right? We don't know anybody else, but you look down the table, well, they kind of look like me. Well, says who, Right? But this is something that goes on in our own hearts as Christians. And we kind of give ourselves a pass on it. But James says that this, this goes against the law of God and it creates great conflict between us and God. Because what we see in the word of God is that because God is a God of selfless love, we must reflect this supreme and selfless love towards others. The love of God that he poured out on the lives of, of us as, as sinners requires us, if we know the Lord, to live in that same love. When Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, he said the fruit of the Spirit is, and the first one is, love. It's a love that comes only from God's working in our heart. So let's take a few minutes here and we'll, we'll break this passage apart and really try to, to grasp what, what James is teaching us here. He really gives two pictures The first picture is this idea of the lawbreakers. James says in in verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. We'll just stop right there and see that there's there's a kingly command that comes from God to us. Because practically speaking, a changed life in Jesus Christ is a life consumed with keeping the law of God. Now, not in our own strength. 
And not in some way that we, we want to gain God's favor or, or gain our salvation, but what we're doing is to reflect Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the area of partiality and favoritism, James appeals to what he calls the royal law. That word royal, if you go back to the Greek text, that word royal means king. So we call it the kingly law. In a kingdom, if you think of a king making, a sovereign making a a, a rule or law, I mean, if he makes a law, who has to follow the law? Everybody lives in the kingdom, right? And if that law is not followed, then punishment is doled out on those who break that law. And so when God gives law, it is not an option. It is the sovereign law of the land for all of eternity. And the answer to impartiality in our lives lies in keeping God's law. And specifically, James mentions here in this royal law the summation of the second part of the Ten Commandments. How many of you are familiar with with the Ten Commandments? Now, obviously, that is not all of the law that God has given, right? But it's the one we appeal to the most. And really, you can sum up the first four commandments and the last six commandments in two different sets. And in fact, Jesus himself does this. So when you read here in chapter 2, verse 8, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you say, man, that that really sounds familiar. It, It should be familiar. In Matthew chapter 22, this is what happened in Jesus, with Jesus' life, starting verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And the word hang there means depend. Everything you read in the law of God and the prophets of God goes back to this. The law of God is fulfilled in supreme love for God and selfless love for others. Everything goes back to that. First and foremost, and with all of our being, we give supreme love to who? To God, our creator our Redeemer, our King. And then we are to reflect that selfless love that he showed us to others. Paul would write this in Romans 13, 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love completes, fulfills God's law. And this goes back to what God said in his law in the Old Testament and Leviticus. I know that's probably, uh, everyone's favorite book of the Bible is probably Leviticus. But you go back to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 through 18, you shall, not, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The answer to favoritism in the church of James's day was selfless, reasoned out love towards others. That's the idea behind the word that James uses when he talks about love. 
It's that word agape, that Greek word that, that means a selfless, reasoned out, self-sacrificial love. It's a love that's a choice to love others. It's a love that's above any other type of love. It's a, it's a choice that says, I'm going to love you no matter what. No matter what, you, what they look like, loving them the way Jesus Christ loves them. And the same is true for us today to overcome partiality in our own lives, to understand that the law of God applies to our lives because the law of God is a reflection of who God is. And keeping God's law with God's help will lead us to living in a way that pleases God. And we say, well, what does God want me to do? What is the will of God for my life? We talked about this, uh, I think, in the last couple of weeks. I think it was on a Sunday night we even mentioned it. And very simply, if you want to know what the will of God for your life is, open the word of God and read it. He's given to us what he wants us to do, to follow him. Just look at these two things, to love God supremely and love others selflessly. And the law of God, in this matter, is is extremely countercultural. Because when it comes to showing love to other people, the world teaches us something different. The world teaches us that we need to build up this love within ourselves, and then we can show it to others. You ever heard this phrase? You just need, before you can love others, you just need to learn to what? Love yourself. My favorite Hebrew word for that is baloney. (laughs) Why? Because you know what? We're really good at loving ourselves. We're really good at taking care of ourselves. We are experts at that. In, In fact, when Jesus himself gave the summation of the law, when God the Father gave the law of, of God to the people of Israel, he already summed it up. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat others the way you treat yourself. And James says at the end of verse 8, you do well. So let's ask ourselves, how do we treat ourselves? When you've had a long day or a long night or week or month or year, you want to cut yourself a little slack, right? When you've made a mistake in life, you just want to move on and say, I don't want to be defined by that mistake. When When you don't get it right, you just want to wipe the slate clean and start over. When you walk into an unfamiliar situation, let's apply it to this. You want others to to treat you well without basing that treatment based on what you look like. You don't want other people to make snap judgments on who you are or you don't even know them. In short, what do we want for ourselves? We always want the best for ourselves, right? Just deep down within our core, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, you still have that. Well, this is what I want for me. And so you don't have to look around to figure out what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. You need only look within and ask God for his help to show that type of love to others. Because I can guarantee you that no human being loves you as much as you love you. But God loves you even more than that. As I read this week thinking about these things, one author put it this way. Think of it this way. That one day you're returning home from work. And I know that 
after the events of the last couple of years, nobody leaves the house to go to work anymore, but let's pretend, okay? And as you're returning home from work or the store, you approach the turnoff of the highway, you notice that there is smoke rising in the distance from the direction of your home. And as you drive down the road, you, you begin, as you look off the highway, you begin to pinpoint that that's not just in the direction of your home, that's like the street you live on. And as you turn the corner onto your street, you're greeted by all manner of fire trucks and emergency vehicles, and you draw closer, and you realize it's your home that's on fire. And in that moment, you exclaim, praise the Lord, I am so glad it's not my neighbor's house. And it causes us to say, wait a minute. But if we truly understood what it meant to love our neighbor as ourself, isn't that what we would say? If we truly understood what it meant to to show the royal love of God, that was loving and caring for others the way we do for ourselves, that's exactly how we would approach that situation. I'm not standing up here to tell you that's how I would approach that situation, right? But we do, it does cause us to stop and think that we have a long way to go and to grow in this type of love. And understand that God loves us above all else. And if he has saved us from our sin, he has saved us to show his love to others. So as, as a Christian, you're called to live this out. And if we do not, we find ourselves in the wrong. James continues in verse 9. But, here's the contrast, if you show, and he's going to hone in again on partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James says that if you commit the sin of partiality, you're overstepping the bounds here. Because the opposite of fulfilling God's law is to live at odds with that law. And if the readers of James's letter show partiality, they are committing sin. Those who make a habit of their lives of making externally based judgments and letting that inform how they treat others, James says, are actively living in sin. And again, here James is calling out a specific sin. But just sin in general for a minute, let us understand that sin isn't a mess up. Sin isn't an an inconsiderate moment. It's serious business. In fact, James uses two terms here when talking about sin. One, he uses the word sin. The word sin means to miss the mark or to fall short. There's an expectation from God that this is what you are to do or not to do. And if you sin, you, you fall short of whatever that expectation was. James says then if you, if you commit sin, that you're convicted, and here's the other word, as a transgressor of the law. Transgressor means one who willfully goes beyond the limits. So you have two pictures here. Sin is, is missing the mark of God, but it's also going over the threshold. It's going over what God said not to do. God says that to show, he says, he calls us to show sacrificial purposeful, selfless love to others. James says partiality falls short of what God says, and it carries us beyond the limits of what God says we are to do. This is the nature of sin. And sin isn't cute or playful. It doesn't have a tolerable limit. Sin is pass or fail. It's direct failure of what God says. 
And God says, this is the standard. And sin will keep you from meeting that standard. And sin is also willful rebellion against God. God says, this is what you should do, or you must do, or must not do. These are my expectations. And sin throws that right back in his face and says, I'm going to do what I want. And the life of a Christian should not be a life that's characterized, that's known for sin. Instead, we should be living really counterculturally to the world we live in. While the world spends its time enjoying the pleasures of sin, we should be seeking the joy of our king. But how often do we spend time in our own lives trying to justify that something is okay? And the problem is this, that we look at sin, even as Christians, we tend to look at sin in parts and degrees. And James corrects this thinking. He shows us that sin, in one point, is an all-encompassing failure before a holy, unified God. He gives here in verses 10 and 11 the cohesive whole of the law of God. He says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What does it take to be a lawbreaker? Does one have to break all the laws and all the rules to be a lawbreaker? Well, no. James tells us the truth. He says, to break one of God's laws is to incur the guilt of the whole law. You read that there. In verse 10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point shall be guilty of all. And we say, well, why is this? Well, because the law of God is a unified whole. God is a God of eternal unity. And his law reflects his nature. So to sin against a holy, infinite God brings greater judgment on our lives than any man can conceive or contrive in this life. The law of God doesn't work like a credit and debit system. As humans, we like to think it does, right? That, that if you do or don't do some things that God says to do or don't do, then you get some points over here, right? It's like a bank. And then when you, when you disobey God, you, you get it deducted over here. And at the end of your life, as long as you got more credits or enough credits to get in, then, then you're good. But the law of God doesn't work that way. It's pass or fail. It's not a point system. God is perfect and holy and and as such expects holiness and perfection. And when it comes to sin, all sin is offensive before God. God doesn't work on a scale of degrees. And again, that's our human understanding. It's our human thinking. We have in our minds... That there are some sins that are like really bad, right? And there are other sins that like everybody does, so it's okay. Well, let's take, let's take what's before us. James mentions two what we might say really bad sins. Murder and adultery. Well, those are, those are really bad, right? But he's also in the, same, in the same area talking about partiality. One that we would as humans say, well, that's not so bad. I mean, we all kind of do that, right? But James says that that, that breaking one of these things doesn't just land you in some trouble, it puts you at odds with God. James even says that 
that if you don't commit adultery, and you, but you do murder someone, you still have become a transgressor of the law. So the same God who called adultery sin and murder sin calls partiality sin. So if you've never murdered anyone, and to my knowledge, no one in this room has, but you've shown favoritism based on an outward judgment, you've sinned against God. Because it's not about the law alone. It's about the lawgiver. It's about the holy, holiness of God. God, the creator and king, is the standard of holiness. And when we sin, we defy that holiness and place ourselves out of line with him. And every person who is born into this world is born in this position. They are a sinner in need of a savior. They are a sinner at odds with God. And you and I, we cannot earn our way to heaven. We need Jesus Christ. And if you do know him as your savior... Through him, you have the power to say no to sin and yes to serving God. And if you do not live according to the law of God, if you do not live in a way that honors him, what does that say of your life? What's going on? Are you out of fellowship with him? Are you not walking with him? Is your active rebellion a sign of a heart far from God? Or is your active rebellion against God a sign of one who doesn't know God at all? Because really, those are the, the only options. Instead, instead of being lawbreakers, James says, instead of, of thinking you're okay, let us live as law abiders. Let us recognize where we stand in regard to God's law and live for Him. In verse 12, James says that there are actions in our lives we need to take informed by God's law. He says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Instead of living contrary to God and his ways, believers are called to live in accordance with them. And James here again brings up this term that he brought, back, he brought up uh, in the last chapter when he said, talked about the man looking into the law of liberty. He brings that word up again, that, that idea of the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty. The law of liberty is the gospel. It is this message that Jesus Christ came to earth as God and man, and he lived a perfect life, that he gave himself on the cross for your sin, rose and offers you eternal life and offers you new life. That is the law of liberty. It is exactly what Jesus declared in his ministry in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The lives of God's own are characterized by the things of God. And James says, so speak and so do. Our speech and our actions reflect our new lives with God. There is true freedom to live for God in a relationship with God. Before salvation, the only law that you and I can live to is the law of sin. Before you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you, you know nothing but serving yourself and your sin and doing what is wrong. But after 
Jesus Christ. After salvation, there truly is a law of liberty in our lives. The judgment of a Christian was meted out to Jesus on the cross. And when you stand before God, your record will not show your sin if you know Jesus Christ. It will show the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ on your account. When God looks at the life of a Christian, he does not see sin. You know what he sees? He sees Jesus Christ. So therefore, James says, as those who will be judged by this law of liberty, if you have a relationship with God, when you get to the end of your life, that's the law you will be judged by. You will be judged by the law of liberty. You will be given entrance into heaven based on Jesus Christ. So if that's your testimony, James says, then live as one who will be judged like that. Live as one who abides by the law of God. John MacArthur said, good works cannot produce redemption. But genuine redemption produces obedient and holy living that will be be characterized by good works. Your good works can't bring you to God, but God can bring you to good works. Very simply, our actions and words are commanded to fall in line with God's law. We who could not keep it before because of the bondage of sin are now free to live for him. And I really think this, is, this here is part of our issue. Because when we consider the law of God, very often in our hearts, we don't call it the law of liberty. No, we would call it something like the law of constraints. The law of legalism or some other disparaging description. But within God's law, do you understand there is great freedom for the Christian? That he gives us the boundaries in which we operate and the freedom to do so with his help. See, before salvation, loving God supremely and loving your neighbor selflessly is impossible and therefore incurs guilt before God. But after salvation, God's power is present in your life and you can operate in God's law. That is gloriously freeing. That he didn't just say, go do it. He gives you the power to do it. Yet how often do we wish to go outside the law of liberty? How often do we so desperately wish to return to a life that's consumed with sin? And so we leave this new life behind. No, we we don't lose our salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But we go back to our sin and we give victory to it again and again, and we enslave ourselves in that which we have been freed from. Actions informed by God's law is that which is true and lasting freedom. Anything that you leave behind to follow God's law isn't worth it. That sin is not worth it. Those few moments of fleeting pleasure are not worth it because there is new life in Jesus Christ. God's law is one of mercy and those who belong to him should be characterized by that and those who do not will find judgment on their sin. James says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. One day, God will judge all men. 
and to those who do not reflect the mercy of God to others will not experience the mercy of God in their judgment. Why not? Well, because they do not truly know God. Because James says that those who have experienced the mercy of God in their lives show that same mercy to other people. When it comes to salvation, the mercy of God triumphs over judgment because God in his mercy offers us eternal life and a new record in Jesus. And so our reflection of him includes this same mercy. And a life characterized by unmerciful actions shows someone who has not experienced in his own life the mercy of God. And you see how partiality doesn't jive with showing mercy to other people. You can't and make these snap judgments and, and, and show favoritism to other people and, and have a merciful disposition toward them. How you treat others is a great indication of what is going on in your own heart. In the parable of the unmerciful servant we read this morning, Jesus said it this way. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 32, Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. At best, one who treats others unmercifully shows that he is out of step with God. If your life as a Christian is characterized by sin, and you say, well, but I know the Lord, I know I have a relationship with him, then, then you need some time to spend with God and ask him what's going on. God, where, where have I gone astray? Where have I wandered from you? I'd be willing to get that right with him. But at worst, it shows the heart of one who never truly knew God. And that's a scary thought, right? And again, it's not that someone does so many things that they lose their salvation. It's that person never knew God to begin with. And so how do you expect a life to be changed if they've never truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ? God's love and mercy transform us to live for him. And at the judgment of our lives, believers do not need to fear eternal death. But we will also answer for what we have done for God and his strength. Will we be counted as faithful and worthy servants? Or will we be indicted for not living for the Lord? I don't have this in my notes, but if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is is dealing with a a host of issues at the church in Corinth. And one of the issues that he dealt with um, was this idea of people had their their favorite apostle and, you know, I'm I'm of Paul, I'm Apollos, and and these certain things. But he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about the judgment that all Christians face. In verse 9, for we are all God's fellow workers... You are God's field, you are God's building. 
According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which, which is laid, which is, in, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of the life of every Christian is Jesus Christ. Paul continues, now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work will be burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Here's, here's the picture. There is coming a judgment. Now, Christians will not stand before the great white throne judgment of God. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, your name is written in the book of life for all of eternity. But there is coming a judgment of what we did in this life for God. And Paul gives two pictures here. With our lives, we either build with wood, hay, and straw. Or we build with gold and silver and precious stones. And then, how is it tried? By fire. Now, wood, hay, and straw, and fire mix really well. Right? If you want to go out and have a marshmallow roast, it's probably what you're going to take. Some wood, some hay. Maybe not hay, but you've got to get it started somehow, right? And if you and I, as Christians continue to live in sin, continue to live according to our flesh, continue to give in to these things to disobey the word of God, we are building on the foundation that God has laid in Jesus Christ with wood, hay, and straw. And one day, you'll stand before God, and those things of your life are tried by fire, and they'll be gone. It doesn't take away. And Paul says there, they will still be saved, yet though as by fire, There'll be no reward to lay at the feet of Jesus Christ. But when we do the things of this life with the help of God and the power of God and we follow God's will, God's law in our lives, what do we build with? Gold and silver and precious stones. And when you take gold and silver and precious stones and you expose them to fire, what happens? They purify so God takes these things that we do in this life with his help and he makes them better. As only he can do. And we enter into eternity with a reward. We enter eternity to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so let us, today we, we looked, as James talks about this idea of partiality, but let us consider, yes, partiality, but beyond that, how are we living our lives? Are we living as a Christian? Are you living your life as one who is abiding by the law of God with God's help? Or one who is breaking the law of God because, hey, God forgives, it'll be all right. It'll be okay. And no, this is not saying that if you're not perfect, God's going to throw you out of heaven. We're going to fail. We're going to mess up, all right? We're going to need to come back and get right with God. But what does the consistent picture of your life say? 
Because God is a God of selfless love, we must reflect the supreme and selfless love towards others. The sin of partiality is a direct assault on the royal law of God. It shows a heart not living informed by the law of liberty and instead shows a lack of mercy. And when we fall short and when we overstep God's law in this way, we are guilty. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know the, the, the heart of every single person. But maybe you sit here today and you think you're okay in life because you haven't committed any big sins. My friend, the God who tells us not to kill one another is the same God who tells us not to lie. It's the same God who tells us not to show favoritism. You cannot get to heaven on your own. You need the law of liberty applied to your life and applied to your account through the mercy of God. You need a relationship with the Savior. This morning, in my, uh, before I, when I got up this morning and read in my devotions, these two verses really stood out to me as I considered these things. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And as much then... As the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same as Jesus Christ. That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Sin entered our world by one man. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, Adam, the representative of of all who had come after him, brought sin into this world. And because of that, every single one of us are born sinners. But as this passage talks about here, in Hebrews chapter 2, another man, Jesus Christ, came. He didn't bring death. He didn't bring sin. You know what he brought? He brought reconciliation with God. He brought eternal life. He brought true victory and freedom. And you can find true victory and freedom in Jesus Christ today. You can live life in his power, knowing where you'll spend eternity and knowing that you're living for the glory of God. Christian, you are called to live as one who has been changed. And the great thing about God's change is this, it never stops. The only thing keeping you from changing is your refusal to submit to the word of God. What are you so wrapped up in that you won't let go? What keeps you from living your faith completely? As a Christian, you're called to live life a, li- a life of constant dependence on God to see his growth. Our outward actions are a testimony of inward change. And if there has been change in your life, it should show. And if there hasn't, it comes out. How we treat others reflects the state of our own hearts. And so as we consider these things today, I I just would encourage you to meditate and think on these things. What, what What do the actions of our lives say about our heart? What is it that God has hammered away at week after week after week to show you, hey, that needs to change. This is what I said. This is what the Word of God says. 
This is what I want to do in your life, but yet we continue to put it off, we continue to put it off, and we continue to put it off. I promise you, whatever you're holding on to isn't worth it. Whatever you and I think we need, we don't need. We need God above all else. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power therein to change our lives. Thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from our sin. And you have given us true victory over sin in this life. And Lord, we do ask that you would continue to convict our hearts. That you wouldn't leave us alone. That you would show us what's wrong. That you would show us the hope of the gospel and that you would make us new. Lord, would you help us to be willing to be humble before you and admit that we need your help. Lord, I pray for one who may be here today who is wrestling with some things in their own life, who says, I don't even know what it means to have a relationship with God. I don't even know what it means to be a Christian or a believer. Maybe just terms that we've heard. But Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to seek someone out today to know for sure that when they die, they can spend eternity with you and know what true victory in this life looks like and true purpose and fulfillment. Lord, I pray for a Christian who may be here today who is really wrestling with some sin, who has time and again said no to God, who has time and again lived for self and and just sees no victory. Lord, would you show them that in you there is true victory and they can live for you. Lord, may we live to give you all the honor and glory and praise. Be with us now as we close up this service. We ask that in the things that we have going on this afternoon, we would honor you and glorify your name, we pray. Amen.